One of the hallmarks of the American experiment that began, that launched on July 4th, 1776 with our Declaration of Independence is that we Americans have no king. Uh, even our executive leader, the, the president, is checked and balanced by the legislative and judicial branches. Our, our system of government isn't designed to grant one man or one woman total rule, as uh, King George III of Great Britain had in 1776 before the War for Independence, or as my British friend Douglas says, the War of American Aggression. Um, one of the founding principles of our land is that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Well, why is that? Well, our founding fathers understood this principle of government protects a nation against abusive and tyrannical leaders like they understood King George III to be. Uh, perhaps you've listened or watched the um, hit Broadway musical Hamilton, uh, and you've heard that song when King George III appears and, what, and he sings kind of what amounts to a, a satirical love song to the rebellious colonies. And there's this one particular part of the song that makes me chuckle every time. I'm not sure if it'll hit, if it'll hit you the same way this morning, but King George III sings, and it's kind of a parody, right? Oceans rise, empires fall, we have seen each other through it all. And when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. Some love that is. In many ways, it's part of our civic DNA as United States citizens to kind of eschew kings, especially tyrannical ones. We, the people, are supposed to be the sovereign in these United States. It's, it's fundamental to our American understanding of liberty. However, for Christians, the Bible reveals that there is a citizenship that trumps our earthly citizenship. It supersedes it in importance by a long shot. In fact, our heavenly citizenship, this, this better country to which we're headed, dictates our perspective toward and our behaviors in our earthly citizenship. And here's the thing. What the founders set up our whole system of government to avoid, a king, is exactly what we have within the kingdom of God. We have a king, Messiah, installed as the sovereign over his people. In fact, the entire story of the Bible centers around our God sending a good and gracious and even perfect king to reverse the curse of sin and bring fallen humanity back into relationship with him. Friends, this, this hope of the coming king not only filled the stories and prophecies of the Old Testament, it permeates the Psalms and the Psalter. And really, there's no better example of that than the psalm that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 2. So would you turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 2? It's on page 448 of the Bible underneath your chairs if you don't have a Bible this morning. Friends, Psalm 2 is an enthronement psalm. Uh, some think that it was likely sung at the enthronement ceremony of Israel's kings. And whether that was the case or not, we know from the witness of the New Testament that Psalm 2 sings of the time when Jesus Christ took his seat on the throne of the universe as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As I mentioned last week, Psalms 1 and 2 are together are the gateway to the Psalter. They're designed to be read together. Uh, we know that King David wrote Psalm 2. Lindsay read earlier from Acts 4. Acts 4.25 tells us that explicitly. And, and because of certain similarities between the two Psalms, I think it's likely, likely that, that David wrote Psalm 1 as well. 
But regardless, Psalm 1 and 2 are meant to complement one another as a kind of a fitting opening to the Psalter. They both talk about the ideal king. Psalm 1 does so kind of implicitly by describing the blessed man who delights in God's word. But Psalm 2 is not implicit, is it? It is explicit. As God's people sing Psalm 2, we're meant to set our eyes on and give our hearts allegiance to the Messiah King that God has installed in Zion, our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read together Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Friends, here's what I think is the main idea of Psalm 2. As is my attempt every week, I pray that this main idea of Psalm 2 will be the main idea of the sermon this morning. While the nations and their kings rage in rebellion against God, the Lord's Messiah reigns, so give him your heart's allegiance and trust. While the nations and the kings rage as they plot, as they conspire against God in rebellion, the Lord's Messiah reigns on Zion, so give him your heart's allegiance and trust. Friends, I think the structure of Psalm 2 is really easy to see. Every three verses is a new section or stanza. The ESV lays that out really helpfully. If you're reading from that version, it gives a little white space in between each section. I think they got it right. In, in some ways, the, the four big sections of Psalm 2 each have a distinct voice. So in verses 1 to 3, we hear the voice of the conspiring kings of the earth trying to cast off God's authority. In verses 4 to 6, we hear the voice of Yahweh laughing and then speaking that he has set his king on Zion. Then in verses 7 to 9, we hear the Messiah's voice as he is enthroned as the king of the universe on David's throne, receiving this, this global inheritance of the very nations who rebel against him. And then in verses 10 to 12, we hear the voice of the psalmist David beckoning the kings of the earth and all humanity to bow their knee in allegiance to God's Messiah and take their refuge in him. My outline today mirrors this structure of the psalms, the structure of the psalms. Number one, the nation's rage. Number two, the Lord responds. Number three, the Messiah reigns. Number four, the wise revere. The nations rage, the Lord responds, the Messiah reigns, the wise revere. 
Friends, today I pray that God might instill in our hearts a deeper trust and a more firm allegiance to our King. And I pray, friend, if you're here and you don't yet worship King Jesus, that today you would turn from your sin, from your own rebellion, and find refuge from God's wrath in Christ the Son. Number one, the the nations rage. We see that in verses 1 to 3. Friends, what's going on in these these first three verses is simply an extension, an expansion of the way of sinners of Psalm 1-1, right? The company of the wicked now expands into a cosmic revolt of the nations against God and his anointed in Psalm 2. It's, it's the counsel of the wicked and the seat of the scoffers writ large, right? As sinners are grouped into nations and ruled by kings, together they conspire in large-scale rebellion. In verse 1, David begins by asking the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now, friends, notice David doesn't ask if the nations rage and the peoples plot. He asks, why they do. But I don't think his question is so much for information or data. I think he's asking a rhetorical question that is really just based in utter astonishment and incredulity. I, I do this with my kids at least three or four times a week, right? <laughs> right? Why? Why would you do that? What were you thinking? I'm not really looking for an answer. I'm simply expressing my utter astonishment that, did, that they didn't know better, right? Clearly, this is David's line of thought because he expresses from the jump that this raging and plotting by the peoples of the earth is vain. Trying to usurp the sovereign king of heaven is silly. It's futile. And we'll see why as the psalm unfolds. Notice that according to verse 2, the raging of the nations is seen most obviously in the actions of its rulers. Verse 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Friends, it's not shocking that the nations and their kings scheme and plot. This is what nations and kings do. It's how they conquer lands and territories and advance their kingdoms. But what's shocking is who they scheme and plot against. It's against the Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent creator of all things, and against his anointed, who we understand to be the king of Israel that Yahweh appoints. Think back to when Samuel anointed King David's head with oil when he commissioned him to be king of Israel. Clearly, kingship is in view here, right? But the fact that this anointed is placed alongside the Lord as the object of the king's rebellion tells us that this is no ordinary anointed one. This is the anointed one. This is the Messiah king. Notice what what idea stands behind the scheming of the the kings and raging of the nations. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, let us burst their bonds apart, say the kings, right? And cast away their cords, the the cords that bind us, the the cords of the Lord and his anointed that restrain us. Friends, this is the same satanic instinct that we saw in Adam and Eve at the fall. It's the hubris of humanity to think that we're better off without the Lord, that we're just fine. We can rule without him, that his word and his rule aren't good to be desired, Now, friends, the individual rebellion of Adam manifests itself in the group rebellion of the nations and peoples of the world. 
And really, it's been this way from the very beginning of history. If you peer down the corridors of biblical history alone, you'll see time after time that the nations and the kings rage against the Lord's purposes to send his king to save the world. From Egypt and its Pharaoh to Edom and Moab and all the nations of the Canaanites at the time of Israel's conquest, to the Philistines of David's day, to Sennacherib of Assyria and Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon who took God's people in exile, Friends, throughout history, Satan has launched launched assault after assault on the ramparts of heaven through the rebellion of the nations. But as you would expect, the most sinister offensive against the Lord and his anointed happened when the anointed one walked this earth, when Jesus came to save us. And this is how the New Testament Authors understand Psalm 2, 1 and 2 to be primarily fulfilled. So turn with me to Acts 4. Acts 4, it's in your bulletin if you just want to reference it. We're going to read part of what we read earlier again. Friends, if you want to understand the Old Testament, if you want to understand the Old Testament, one of the best ways is to see if the passage you're studying in the Old Testament is quoted or referenced in the New Testament. And the New Testament authors give us the interpretive lens to help interpret the Old Testament. Psalm 2 is one of the, the often quoted psalms in the New Testament. Okay, so we have it easy. Let's, let's start reading in verse 23 of Acts 4. When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant us the ability to speak your word with boldness. In other words, friends, the early Christians understood their persecution at the hands of the Jewish leaders to be right in line with what, the, with what their king had just experienced, what King Jesus had just gone through in his suffering and death. Friends, what they saw in the crucifixion of Christ was, was Herod Antipas, right, the, the, the puppet king of, of the Jewish people in Palestine, and Pilate, the Roman governor, conspiring together right? Taking counsel together, a la Psalm 2-2, just like the psalm says kings would conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed. But these early Christians knew that, as we'll see in the rest of this psalm, that the scheming of the Jews and the, and the Romans did not thwart the purposes of God at all. In fact, their devious plot served the very purpose of God and fulfilled his plan of redemption. These early believers knew that Jesus had promised that his, his disciples would experience the same type of suffering that he did, that the world would hate them because they hate him. They weren't to be surprised when the fires of persecution blaze. And so these Christians prayed in light of Psalm 2 for boldness because Christ triumphed. Friends, the raging of the nations and the rebellion of kings has continued on throughout history. Psalm 2 is a, is a matrix. It's a lens to view so much of what we see in the world today. 
If you want to understand why the geopolitical scene is fraught with wicked leaders and raging nations, look no further than Psalm 2. And I'm talking about the most obvious to the most insidious. From Mao and Hitler and Pol Pot and Kim Jong-un to the Obergefell decision and the celebrating as virtuous what God has declared evil. From unjust wars like the one raging right now in the Ukraine to the toxicity of identity politics. From state-sponsored persecution of Christians in Islamic countries to political rhetoric in ours that divides friends and neighbors. Friends, if I'm reading these verses correctly, there's not a nation on earth that doesn't rage against the Lord and His anointed. The awkward reality of Psalm 2, 1 to 3 is that we must consider our own nation among the raging nations. There's no exclusion clause in Psalm 2 for the United States. For, for all the good that we appreciate about the U.S., our nation and our leaders so often participate and scheme against the Lord and against His Christ. We've seen it just this past week in response to the Dobbs decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. It's been a venomous onslaught of fomenting politicians and social media propaganda and even mob violence against churches and pregnancy centers, even among my pastoral friends. Why would people rage over the right to kill human life in the name of personal choice? Well, friends, it's simply the enacting of Psalm 2-3. Let us burst his bonds apart. Our nation is included among the rebellious. Psalm 2 reminds us that the nation's rage and the rulers of the earth set themselves against the Lord precisely because the public square is like a jumbo-sized version of the human heart. It's a battleground of God's. The public arena where ideas are debated and influence exercised and decisions made exposes our idolatrous human instinct to rest our hopes on anything but God. We fashion gods in our own likeness and then rage in an effort for those gods to be worshipped throughout our society. But friends, lest you be discouraged, lest you be disheartened, our takeaway from Psalm 2, 1 to 3 is that we ought not to be surprised by this type of mass rebellion against the Lord and His Christ. Oh, don't let the raging nations dishearten you. Even if it feels like kind of the walls of the culture are pressing in around us, don't be discouraged. Group rebellion is nothing new, and it is equally as futile now as it was 3,000 years ago when Psalm 2 was penned. In some ways, friends, I think the rest of this psalm really is an extended application of verses 1 to 3. It's an extended application of these truths. So let's move on to verses 4 to 6. Number 2, the Lord responds. In verse 4, David immediately just kind of soars above the rebellious fray with the eagle eye of faith. He sees the whole picture accurately. Here's what's really going on. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Notice back in verse 2, it's not merely that individual rulers set themselves against the Lord. It's as, it's as if they do so together. They, they coordinate their attack, as it were. They form a satanic coalition against the Lord. Oh, friends, surely their persuasive philosophies and, and witty arguments and legislative decisions threaten the purposes of God. 
Friends, what the rulers of the earth don't realize is their frontal assault is against the one who sits on heaven's throne, the sovereign of the universe. The scoffers may occupy their seats of influence, but they amount to nothing when stacked next to the one occupying the throne of the heavens. He is utterly unperturbed. He's not threatened in the slightest. You remember uh, the Lilliputians from Gulliver's Travels, the book? At one point, Gulliver awakened from his sleep on an island shore, and to his amazement, he discovered that the local islanders who were no bigger than the size of his little finger were scaling ladders against his body, right? And, and then the king of the Lilliputians, who was just a, a smidge taller than the other pinky-sized men and women, mounted a ladder, and he climbed up on Gulliver's chest and started barking orders at him. With the clap of his hands, Gulliver could have smashed them, but instead he plays their game. Friends, such is the ludicrous rebellion of the nations. The one who sits in the heavens isn't threatened. What is God's reaction to the haughty words of these munchkin kings? He doesn't nervously count the enemy and calculate whether he has enough force to counter them. He doesn't pace nervously around the throne room of heaven. No, no, so unthreatened is our God that not only is he still seated firmly on the throne, he laughs at the nations in derision. He scoffs the scoffers. The nations to him are like a drop in the bucket and like dust accounted on the scales, Isaiah 40. They are like Lilliputians to God. He is the one who dictates when empires rise and fall. He is the one who installs and removes kings. He is the one who is both Lord and goal of human history. Who are the nations when compared to such a transcendent, sovereign, and holy God? But God's voice isn't heard merely in laughter. We hear it in his words, which happen to make world-shaping decrees. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them, the rulers of the nations, in his wrath and identify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Friends, God's wrath and fury is the settled and righteous response to the insolence of the nations and their kings. But look at the end of verse 5. To me, this feels totally unexpected. What you expect is something like, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, your day's coming, or you're dead meat, or who do you peons think you are, right? That is not what he says at all. Instead, the expression of God's judgment over the nations, in this case, is the appointment of his king. Quick aside, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the, with the term Zion, it's a simply, uh, essentially shorthand for Jerusalem. Uh, king David conquered the Jebusite fortress of Zion, and then he placed the Ark of the Covenant on the northern hill uh, of Jerusalem, and that's where the, the temple was eventually built. God's special presence dwelt on Zion. It was God's holy hill. Throughout the rest of the Bible, Zion came to picture not just the physical Jerusalem, but the, the heavenly place, the spiritual place of God's dwelling. Friends, do you want to know why God laughs at the feudal pride of the nations and their kings and their grasp for autonomy? It's because God has already set his king in place on Zion, and that king will rule the nations. In other words, the rebellious kings and the nations have already lost, and they don't even know it. 
Notice that Yahweh speaks as if this king is already installed. And this is a thousand years before Christ came. In one sense, I think God speaks this way because his purpose is so sure and his promise so anchored in his own truthfulness that he can speak of a future event in time as if it already happened. He promised it. It's as good as done. But on the other hand, remember who's writing this psalm. Who's writing the psalm? It's King David, right? It was to David that God made his promise to install David's messianic descendant as king. And because David reigns in Zion, the wheels of salvation, the wheels of messianic dominion are already in motion. The king reigns in Zion. Friends, remember, just a few moments ago, I said that the rest of Psalm 2 is kind of like a teased out application of verses 1 to 3. Here's what I mean. God is not dismayed by the raging nations in the slightest. In fact, he laughs at them. We ought not to be dismayed either. You want to live a life, friend, of of joy and peace and confidence, no matter the circumstances around you, no matter what's going on in the geopolitical scene or in in the political realm. You want the dread that you feel in your soul when you see the encroaching opposition to Christianity to just evaporate? Look to the one who sits on heaven's throne. He's got it under control just fine. His reign isn't affected one iota by kings who seek to dislodge him. He has set his king in Zion. You can trust him. You can pray with full confidence that he has the power and authority to answer you and protect you. And you can boldly make him known and spread his gospel without fear of what the, what the watching nations may think or do to you. Our God is exalted and his purposes are sure. The old Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane famously quipped that for every look that you take at yourself at introspection, take 10 looks at Christ. It's great advice. Well, I'd like to give my own advice in that vein. For every look that you take at the news headlines, take 10 looks at the King of Heaven. For every confusing or terrifying thing that floats across the airwaves about the raging of the nations, take 10 looks at the one who rules the cosmos in majesty and justice and righteousness, who holds the wicked in derision. The nations rage. The Lord responds. Number three, the Messiah reigns. Verses 7 to 9. We've heard the voice of the kings conspiring against God. So the Lord speaks about his king, and now it's kind of like he hands the ball off, right? He hands the ball off to the anointed king, the Messiah, and he speaks. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, friends, obviously David, as the psalm writer, is, is writing in a kind of a prophetic first person here. He's articulating the words of his greater son, our Lord Jesus. Just so we're totally clear, the son of verse 7, the son of verse 7 is the anointed of verse 2 and the king that God installs in verse 6. It's not three different people. It's the same guy. It's the, it's the Messiah king. Now, in order to understand Psalm 2-7, we need to realize that in saying, you are my son, the Lord is not primarily talking about the eternal sonship of God, the second person of the Trinity. 
It's not talking specifically about Jesus' deity, although Jesus is God, and, and that, that theological point, that, that truth of, of Christ's deity and the interrelationship of the Trinity is never totally out of the picture. But rather, the sonship of Psalm 2-7 specifically references the human king's relationship to God, the coming Messiah's relationship with God. It's covenantal language. In fact, his statement, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is referencing God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. So let's turn there real quick. 2 Samuel 7. We're going to do some flipping around in this psalm series, I think. I think it's helpful. 2 Samuel 7, that's page 259. Okay, King David is on the throne at this point in history. And he asks the Lord for permission to build the Lord a house, a, a temple, his temple in Jerusalem. But the Lord in 2 Samuel 7 essentially says, hey, instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you one, right? I'm going to build you a dynasty of kings. Let's start reading in verse 11, 2 Samuel 7. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Do you hear it? Did you see it? There it is in the words of God's covenant with David. One of David's descendants would have an eternal kingdom, and he will be to the Lord a son. This is, this is talking about Israel's king who will sit on David's throne and bring God's salvation and defeat all the people's enemies. Friends, what God is saying is that this son king who will sit on David's throne forever will do what Adam and Israel and the other Israelite kings failed to do so miserably. He will succeed where they did not. Friends, after all, Adam, the first man, was to rule for God on the earth. He was to image God as an obedient, loyal son. He was to be a royal son. But then Adam rebelled against God's rule, and he was expelled, wasn't he, from the garden? The sentence of death passed upon all men, and all became sinners through Adam. But what did God do? He promised that in mercy, one day a woman would have a son. And this offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. He would put an end to evil. He would reverse the curse. He would bring salvation. Well, fast forward in history. God's promises over time narrowed from Adam to Abraham, to whom God promises an offspring who will bless all the nations of the world. And then when God called Abraham's children the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, what did he say? Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Again, covenantal language. And as God's son, Israel also had a royal function. They were to be a kingdom of priests to represent God's rule by keeping God's law. Adam was the royal son. Israel was the royal son. Israel's king represents the people as the royal son. And especially according to 2 Samuel 7, the coming Messiah would be the great royal son. So friends, from the time that King Solomon, David's son, took the throne, 
From that time on, God's people in Israel began to look for God to fulfill his promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Solomon, an immensely successful king, but he wasn't the one. Foreign wives influenced his heart away from the Lord. He had a divided heart, and Solomon died. He was not the promised king who would rule forever. And so the same, king after king after king in Israel's history, some good and many idolatrous, none of them, none of them worthy to be granted an eternal throne. Certainly, none of them worthy to ask God for the nations as an inheritance and have a global rule. Eventually, David's throne sat vacant entirely. By the time the Psalter was finished, not only had God's promise to David not come to pass, it looked like the Davidic dynasty had disintegrated, and along with it, the people's hopes. And that's why the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, opens with a genealogy. Matthew shows us in the first verse of the New Testament that the king who occupies the throne of David is none other than Jesus Christ, and it is his by right the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of God. In other words, God did not renege on his promise. He kept every one of them. Friends, do you remember, do you remember from Matthew the words that God the Father thundered from heaven at the time of Jesus' baptism? You remember John brought Jesus out of the water, the dove lights upon Jesus to signify his anointing by the Holy Spirit as king. And what is what does God say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, this was God announcing that the anointed king, the son, had arrived. Psalm 2 is being fulfilled. This is the son I promised. He's here. Listen to him. Worship him. Follow him. But what about the language of, of Psalm 2-7, today I have begotten you? In what sense does God become the son's father? Hasn't he always been? Well, again, if you're talking about the kind of inter-Trinitarian relationship, absolutely. The divine son is eternally begotten of the father. But, but verse 7 indicates that the son, or excuse me, that God begets the son at a specific point in time. Do you see that? David speaks of that point in time as today. Today I've begotten you, says the Father. Now, this is a bit confusing until you realize and remember that this begetting by God is not talking about the Father giving birth, but the begetting of the King's sonship as Messiah. It's Father-Son language used about the enthronement of the Son as King of the universe, sitting on David's throne. So turn to Acts 13 now. Again, I promised we'd flip a little bit. That's what we're doing. Acts 13. That's page 922. And again, we're going to let New Testament Scripture help us interpret the Old Testament. In Acts 13, Paul, the apostle, was preaching a sermon in Antioch about Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay? Let's pick it up in verse 29. Acts 13, starting in verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, that's Jesus obviously, and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come, uh, come with him uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news 
that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Bingo. (laughs) There it is, friends. When was the today of which David spoke prophetically in the Messiah's voice that the father begat him, the Messiah, as son? It was the day of his enthronement. The day when he, by virtue of his sinless life and atoning death, walked out of his tomb as the conquering king and later ascended to the right hand of the father. Well, friends, think just for a moment. Let's let's just digest this for a second. I know we've looked at a ton of scripture and it's kind of like this collage of, of biblical theological truth about Christ. Let's just think about this. Think about how gloriously different our king is than the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth claw after authority that's not rightfully theirs. Jesus emptied himself of his rights and became obedient to the death of the cross. The kings of the earth conquer by spilling the blood of others. Jesus conquered by spilling his own. The kings of the earth so often use their people to serve their own interests. Jesus, our king, served his people for their eternal interests by dying and rising again. He lived and he died and he arose all in astonishing love and mercy for rebels like us. The kings thought they had him. Satan thought he had triumphed. But all their futile efforts did was coronate him as king and enthrone him as the Lord of all. The God of heaven laughs. Because on the third day, Jesus rose. He is the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Friends, crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon his throne. Now back to Psalm 2. Now that we know that Psalm 2-7 is talking about the enthronement of King Jesus over the universe, the Lord's invitation to the Son in verse 8 makes total sense, doesn't it? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Friends, if indeed King Jesus is the true and better Adam, and Adam at the beginning was given global dominion, then surely Jesus the King deserves to take possession of it all including the nations. If Jesus fulfills the promise to Abraham to bless the nations and God's promise to David included an eternal dominion, then surely all the nations are King Jesus's by right. His prayer for a heritage of the nations, the possession of the coastlands, this prayer will be, will be granted absolutely. They're the spoils of his victory. Beloved, the very nations that conspired to rebel against him belong to him. King Jesus has every prerogative to wipe them off the face of the planet. And verse 9 indicates that for the nations and the peoples that don't bow their knee to him, Christ the King will judge them righteously. He will break them with a rod of iron. There's coming a day when the King will exercise his right to put down the rebellion. At God's appointed time, Jesus will return. And the sobering reality is, friends, on that day, the the raging nations don't stand a chance. 
So easy and total will Christ's victory be that he will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, like a clay pot. When an iron rod meets a clay pot, the iron rod wins every time. So friend, don't wonder if justice will be executed against the rebellious kings and nations of the earth, against the evil empires of this age. There is no doubt that it will. Friends, I ask again, why would we fret about the scheming of the nations? Why would we let ourselves get twisted up in knots about what the future of our country may look like when we know the future of all world history? Why would we let election results steal our joy and rob our peace when our king never leaves office? Our king reigns. He is risen from the dead and he sits on the throne of David over the cosmos. And there is coming a day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. This truth should fill us with a joyful confidence and a holy boldness. I think this psalm beckons us to recalibrate our hopes. We shouldn't despair on the one hand, and neither should we think that total victory will come in the here and now. We don't need to become culture warriors fighting and clawing with a broiling anger as if our hopes really do rest in this age. No, the message of the psalm is that God is unflappably enthroned in the heavens and his Messiah, our Lord Jesus, reigns in Zion. So don't despair on the one hand and don't put your hope in this age on the other in the kingdoms of man here. Our outcome is secure. But what about right now? What about right now? We, we know what's coming. We know that Christ's reign will be expressed in the future in judgment when he returns. But, but how do we see his reign right now? Can we see his reign? Oh, yes, friends. Even though Christ's kingdom is not of this world, his kingdom reign is also very much visible. And right now, Christ's reign is fundamentally one of mercy, not of judgment. Before he ascended to heaven, our king said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I sit on David's throne. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. In other words, Jesus commissioned his disciples to go and bring in the inheritance of the nations that he had won by his death and resurrection. Go preach the gospel and call the nations that belong to me back to me. Friends, you know how the disciples carried out those orders? They preached the gospel and then those who responded to their message and faith formed embassies of heaven on earth. Outposts of the kingdom, physical, real-life outposts of Christ's reign on the earth. You say, well, that sounds really important. Where would I find such an embassy of, the, of King Jesus? Do, do I go to Pennsylvania Avenue? Do I cross the seas and find this embassy of the high king of heaven in, in Buckingham Palace? Or maybe the Kremlin? Oh, no, friends. You'll not find these outposts of Christ's rule in the places of power but so often in the places of weakness. You can walk into an embassy of King Jesus in a secret gathering in a house church in communist China or in Islamist Iran. You'll find an embassy of King Jesus in thatched roof buildings in the Amazon 
in a random office complex at 3673 South Bullard Avenue. You see, our king's dominion over the nations is manifest in the local church. We are the king's reign made visible. Through the preaching of the word, and, and exor- we exercise Christ's authority to affirm the true gospel. And by baptism and church membership, we affirm the confession of those who believe that gospel. Friends, every Sunday we gather under the banner of the risen Christ and we listen to the words of our king and we sing the anthem of the kingdoms and we gather around the king's table to proclaim his death until he comes. It's here within the church that we grow by grace a culture of the kingdom so that God's will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we prayerfully showcase to the watching nations the justice and love and mercy of our King in the way that we love each other in our relationships and in the message we proclaim. In other words, friends, we, the people of the resurrected King, gather to make His rule seen and worshipped among the nations that He possesses. What an awesome responsibility. Number four, the wise revere. The wise revere. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalmist lays out for the rulers of the earth the only fitting response to the king. And he gives an invitation, right? King Jesus is not going to coerce your obedience, friends. He's going to beckon your will. There is yet time for the kings of the earth to turn from the rebellion to Christ. But the window is closing, and one day the son's patience will be extinguished. His wrath will flare, and all those who oppose him will perish in the way. He will be glorified in his judgment. So the invitation from David the psalmist And even the invitation that we extend through the gospel is, O kings of the earth, and all those under them, be wise. What is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs? It's to fear the Lord, to revere Him, serve the Lord with fear, submit to His authority and to the rule of His Christ. What David is doing is he's calling the wicked kings and rulers to abandon their rebellious plans and worship the Lord by rejoicing with trembling with the requisite humility and awe that's fitting of such a God. But notice it's not just generic, is it? It's not just generically acknowledging God's authority and that's good enough. No, not only must they abandon the rebellion, they must also kiss the Son. They must give the Son their loyalty and honor. Friends, what we're seeing here is what the New Testament calls repentance and faith. This is what it is. The only hope for the kings and the nations of the world is to turn from their sin and rebellion and trust trust in Christ and love the Son. Psalm 2 ends how Psalm 1 begins. Did you see that? It's one reason we think they're connected. Blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Friends, here we see that the invitation of verses 10 to 12 isn't just for the kings and the rulers. It's for everyone. It's for the factory worker and the college student and the corporate executive and the single mom. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, friend, there is no refuge from God's wrath apart from Christ, his son. But in Christ, you can be eternally safe. This little phrase, blessed are all who take refuge in him, is, is kind of an Old Testament way of expressing the heart of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Because here we see in this little phrase that you can be saved from the wrath of God by the mercy of God. You can be shielded from the Messiah's judgment by the Messiah's grace. In other words, God has taken the initiative to provide a refuge against his wrath, his just response to human sin, to your sin. No matter how much, friend, you've bucked against God's authority in your life, you can be forgiven. And it won't be by self-atoning efforts like good works or church attendance to improve your record. No, it will be simply by trusting the king who took God's judgment on the cross for your record of rebellion and in exchange give you his, gives you his perfect record of righteousness. That's how it'll happen. Friends, today Christ's hand of mercy is outstretched to you. If you look long enough, you'll see that the cords of authority that you've tried to rip off the cords of God's authority that you've tried to just untangle yourself from, they're actually cords of His grace. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. If you seek shelter from God's wrath and God's Son, our God will move heaven and earth to make sure that that you get what you seek. You will find refuge eternally in Him. So don't put it off. Don't waste any more time. Come to Jesus today. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning that you are enthroned in the heavens, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you have died on the cross for our sins and risen from the dead in victory. Oh, Father, we thank you for Psalms like Psalm 2, written 3,000 years ago, that speak so powerfully to us today about our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the way that you have made your promises and you have fulfilled them powerfully through your Son. Oh, Father, may this alone, the fact that you keep your promises, just give us all types of confidence and trust in you. Oh, Father, I pray that you might help our hopes, our desires our attitudes, our perspectives about the raging nations uh, to, to be so in light of your word. We thank you that you're sovereign and we thank you that you have set up your king in Zion. And it's in his name we pray, amen.